I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we read a celebrity memoir, parse out the important bits, and if there are no important bits, we just give you our opinions. So... If you don't want to hear them, you can read the book for yourself. No need to uh, start a war with North Korea on our behalf. Wow, that was incredibly informational and with a beautiful tie-in at the end. Thank you. Well done, Ash. I practiced it for 10, 15 seconds in my head before I said it out loud. You know, luck favors the prepared and we got lucky today. (laughs) I thought it favors the bold. Oh, that's fortune. (laughs) God damn it. Okay, I also just want to say, you guys, we just got back from our Texas dates in Dallas and Austin. And I genuinely, this is going to sound cheesy, but I mean it, want to say thank you to everyone who came and everyone who came and met us afterwards. I feel like it shifted my entire perspective about the way I like give so much of my attention to negativity. This is so corny and I'm embarrassed to even say it. But like, I'm just like genuinely grateful that anybody listens and anybody likes us and getting to remember that there are people who like us and that's actually why we do this podcast. It made me feel ashamed and embarrassed and awful that I have given so much of my time and attention to anybody who is quote unquote a hater because it's like rude to you guys who listen and are nice and enjoy what we do. And I cannot honestly vow to never do it again, but I vow to feel bad about it and try better. Yeah, it was just so wonderful to meet you guys. I had so much fucking fun at the shows and I enjoyed meeting you guys so much afterwards to everyone that we got to talk to. It's just so cool to meet the people who listen and be like, oh my God, there are so many like smart, cool people smart, cool, and like wildly creative people that we got to meet after the shows. It was so great. I also want to say that if you are coming to the shows in Portland and Seattle, the venues are opening up an hour. Like you'll see online when they're opening up before the actual show starts, that will be the meet and greet yourselves time. Meet and greet the worms time of the worm. Buy the worms for the worms and starring the worms. If you're there alone looking for a friend or if you're just new to town looking for a friend, even if you don't have a ticket and you're looking for a friend, just someone to chat with, We will set up little icebreakers when we get there so you guys can go and meet each other. And also, if you are trying to do a ticket swap for these shows and any upcoming shows, we are trying to organize it in the Geneva because to me, that just makes the most sense. Besides like trying to remember your DMs, post them and get everybody in touch. It makes sense to me to just like have a designated area. So in the location specific part of the Geneva, like if you have tickets to the Seattle show or the Portland show or the Dublin show, go to that location and just be like, I have two tickets for sale or I'm looking to buy two tickets. And I think that that is the most efficient way to do it. And if I'm wrong, we will adapt because I love to adapt, baby. I love to adapt like a little caterpillar. Anyway, we are so excited to be in Seattle as you hear this. And we are excited for the show tonight. I hope to see you there, Portland tomorrow and Europe next week. This is, you know, almost your last chance to buy tickets. So come on down, baby. And if this sounds jarring compared to the rest of the episode, it is because we waited to do this part live so that we would not be lying when we thanked people for coming out. Because what if it had like, what if a meteor had struck the audience and we were like, great show last night. You can never predict for those things. So you have to do it live. Never predict. I swear to fucking God, I'm assuming meteor every day. (laughs) I will never say great hang until I've been proven that there was no meteor strike. (laughs) All right. Love you guys. See you tonight. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir, what would you call last week's chapter? I would call it, if you dream it, you can do it. What did you dream? I dreamed that someday I would repaint my living room. And what did you accomplish? I repainted my living room. All by yourself? 
all by myself. And someone DM'd me and said, hey, one time when I painted my living room, I got paint poisoning and I was dizzy for weeks. And I've been a little bit dizzy for the whole week now. So I'm like, did I poison myself? But I also Googled what a paint poisoning looks like in a dog. Because honestly, when they sent that DM, I didn't even think about myself. I was like, have I poisoned Bug? Should I walk off a cliff right now? The good thing is Bug has not a brain cell to be (laughs) hurt. The thing is, she's been fine. I've been a little dizzy. What would a dizzy bug look like? She's cuckoo bananas as it is. I guess the problem was the dizzy bug would look like a regular bug. But there was, you know, information about poops in that article. So something I'm working on in my friendship with Ashley is getting her to believe me when I say bugs poop is not interesting to anyone but her. And every time she goes, no, I know. But this one and I'm like, no, none of them are interesting to me. Anyway, I can't wait till Claire has a baby and learns that it's harder than it looks. (laughs) (laughs) To not talk about poop constantly. I'm just really proud of myself because it was quite an effort. And sometimes when there's any planning that goes into accomplishing a task, it's really hard for me to do it. And so I'm really proud of myself for doing it. I'm proud of you too. Thank you. It looks great. Thank you. I'm really happy with it. Claire, if you were writing a memoir about your life, what would you title last week's chapter? My week would be, I hate those boys. Which boys? Okay. And I hope I'm not triggering anyone right now. And I hope I'm not overstepping boundaries and offending you personally. But I think some of the worst, dumbest people in New York City are New York City apartment real estate brokers. Yeah, I have moved like three or four times since I moved to New York. And every single time, the hardest part has been dealing with a broker who like forgot the keys when he went to show me an apartment. And I really do think it's because it's so easy to rent an apartment in New York City. Like the demand is so high that the idea that you're in the middle of the demand, you're slowing down the process. And actually, your ineptitude wouldn't stop somebody. Like insanely high prices don't stop people. You are not adding or subtracting from anything. I wonder if they are there to subtract. I wonder if the (laughs) demand is too high that they have to be like, we have to send John and he'll slow the process down. (laughs) So I had to have an open house last weekend, which in itself kind of sucked just because I have strangers coming in, traipsing about my apartment that I have not been great about cleaning because I'm moving anyway. And so now I'm like, oh, all these people are like in my things in my bedroom and stuff, whatever. I get it. That has to be done. It's nobody's fault but my own. But the broker I've been speaking to on behalf of the apartment building itself was, of course, in Miami for the weekend. Where else would a New York City apartment broker be? And so he had two friends doing it for him as a favor. They show up, I'm not kidding, at 1258. And they show up with a guy who's there to see the apartment. And they've bonded. In whatever length of time it took for me to go from my apartment down to the bottom floor to let them in, they've become best friends. And so I let them in and I make a little joke and everybody's just dead silent walking upstairs. And I don't know what came over me to do this, but I was like, okay, guess nobody's going to laugh at that one. And I said it out loud, which was weird for me. That's something I normally would have said in my head. But I said it out loud and then they all heard and like all commented on it. And they're like, oh, no, I laughed. And I was like, OK, no, you didn't. But fine. I can't believe they're going to let you bomb in your own home. You I are know. Truly, it's not your house anymore. You are not welcome there anymore. And I didn't want to be like a bitch, but I was like, I actually am a professional comedian. So I actually am pretty funny. I'm funnier than you fucking assholes. I bet you they were all professional comedians. <laughs> I'm sure if you went on a date with them, they'd be like, yeah, I do comedy too. This wasn't a fucking club material, but. We're all about to go into a small, tight space together. We can be friendly. You laugh, you be nice. They weren't interested in that. So we get up there. And what made me mad is the way that they had bonded with this rando dude. They were all best friends and I was on the outs. And I was like, what's so great about him except for that he's a guy? The way that they treated me versus the way they treated that guy. I understand that technically he was the customer, but I'm like, it's my home. We're all the same age about like, why can't you be at all polite to me? Anyway, so these guys come up. I guess one is manning downstairs and one is up in my apartment and I hear him call the original broker and be like, how much longer do you want me to be here for? It is 1.15 when he makes this phone call. The open house was very clearly from one to two. And in 15 minutes, this man was like, can I get out or what? Dude, 
it's 15 minutes. Like, why can't you just do your job? People that keep coming in and out, they're never once nice to me. They became best friends with that first guy. And then finally the broker calls me at like 150, be like, all right, we already got an application. Like we're good to go, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, my buddy's left. And I was like, what? His friend had just left and not even said goodbye to me. And he had been in the kitchen and I had been in the living room, but they're not divided by a full wall. If he had said anything out loud, I would have heard him. The idea that he did not say goodbye to me on his way out of my own home is so fucking crazy to me. Isn't that weird? That is so weird. Why did they hate you? I don't know. That wasn't ignoring you. That was like seething hatred. (laughs) And I was just like, why are you acting like this? And the fact that you go home and you think you did a good job today because you rang a doorbell and then stood in a home and then left. flash, buddy. You did a bad job. It was so (laughs) bizarre. And I was really mad about it. So I guess that's the chapter of my week is I hate those men. Why did they act like that in my living room? I guess because they're the worst people in New York. (laughs) Are we ready to get into this week's book? Not just a book, but a year book. I wonder why he called it that. I thought that it was going to have a story from every year of his life or something like that. I thought it was going to have little photos of everybody he's ever met. (laughs) Yeah, this week we're reading Seth Rogen's yearbook. If you are a fan of Seth Rogen, but you don't want to listen to him on a podcast or a late night show, luckily he wrote a book with all of his most pointless little anecdotes. Okay, I don't want to be a bitch to you guys, but every once in a while you (laughs) suggest a book and you're like, why won't you do this book? And I just go, I know in my heart it shouldn't be done. And then I always give in because at the end of the day, we do do 50 episodes a year and we do run through things. (laughs) And every once in a while, we think, should we give someone a chance? We've maligned his good name. Should we at least read his book and tell his story? And then I go, Claire, you couldn't have been more right. This book was a vanity project of the utmost degree. Anyway, we're reading your book by Seth Rogen and hold on to your hats. He really is at a point in his career. He goes, I could do almost anything and people will buy it up. You'll eat my slop. People want my silly little stories. They want to know about that one time that I went to the bathroom and there was a guy in the bathroom and I gave him a dollar because I thought he was a bathroom attendant. But really, he was just like a guy trying to get away from his bitch wife. Uh (laughs) (laughs) That didn't happen here, right? No, but I feel like that is the like exact type of story that's like this whole book (laughs) well that's why I was like did I miss a chapter (laughs) these are all of his best dinner party bits that he's already tried on everyone he knows and so he's like what about the people I don't know the idiots who would buy my book that's us we're the idiots he has perfectly crafted uh what should you say when someone meets your hero and their hero is you how do you have like an intimate moment where you tell somebody a story and you share something about yourself and they feel like they know you and they think, oh my God, that guy's just as funny in real life as you'd hoped he would have been on TV, but you actually haven't revealed anything of depth and it's like pointless and it's fun and it doesn't seem like it was pre-scripted because it was just a good story, but not a great story. That's what this is a book of, those moments. A little peek behind the mirror into comedy, the curtain, I guess. I can't wait to learn about this business. A lot of people think that stand-up comedy specials are a comedian winging it. That's not true. When you see a stand-up comedy special, that is most likely one hour of comedy that they've been working out over a year. And then they've been working out in clubs and theaters and then they do it and they film it and then it comes out on Netflix or something, right? And that's the comedy special. And when you release a special, you're essentially burning that material. You're not going to do it on stage again. I feel like this is his in real life bits that he's decided to burn off with a book. And then he'll like start new dinner party bits. There's no Seth Rogen in this book. And if there is Seth Rogen in this book, he's just like a petty grumpy dude. Let's begin. This book came out in 2021 and it very much is a product of its time. A very stoned man was trapped in a house. You guys remember the pandemic. And he thought, how do I make money? 
how do I win a claim? How do I prove that people will just eat up my garbledy gook? And he wrote this book. So the first chapter is about his grandma and grandpa, his Bubby and his Zadie. He didn't like them at first. But then he realized they were funny. And then he started doing stand-up and he did jokes about them and they loved it. And then suddenly it dawns on him that maybe his grandparents weren't freaks and geeks. Maybe they knew they were being funny and that when he was reiterating their own bits on stage to laughter that he wasn't recognizing something in themselves that they did not recognize already. Yeah, so basically this is just a chapter to be like, I have a grandma and grandpa that are silly and also... I Holocaust survivors. Holocaust survivors. And also to be like, I started doing stand-up when I was 12. And then once we meet his grandparents, Zadie and Bubby, then we hear about Bonanza. And what's Bonanza? It's a an all-you-can-eat buffet restaurant. It's like Sizzler, basically. He describes it as Sizzler, but fancier. And this is just a restaurant that his family went to all the time because they were all too specific to cook meals together at home. Like, they couldn't all eat one food. So they had to go to this buffet, like, five days a week. And then one day it closed and it was a snowstorm and they were like, fuck, we have nowhere to eat and we're in the snow. This chapter is used to describe who his dad is. His dad's like a real eccentric. Apparently his dad was actually featured in a documentary called Chore Wars about the way different households divide domestic labor. And they were used because his dad was such a weirdo that he numbered all of the socks he ever owned in his life. Because he didn't like when socks wore down differently. So all of his left socks had to stay left socks and all of his right socks had to stay right socks. And not only that, but he only bought one type of sock on earth. He bought one model of Nike sock. So the problem is if you're wearing like a 1994 sock with a 2001 sock, one's going to have a hole in it and the other's going to be brand new. And he didn't want different wear it downednesses of socks. So he kept all of his socks matched. Which is unique. And then the other story they have is his dad went to a Hanukkah lighting ceremony and protested that this local rich Jewish guy was being celebrated by the Jewish community. Meanwhile, he was anti-labor union, anti a lot of workers' rights. And his dad was like, that's not a very Jewish way to be. You have to be with the oppressed. And so his dad went and caused a ruckus and was actually kicked out by the police. And his family pretended they did not know him. Yeah. So I don't know why he included that to be like, we just looked straight ahead. Well, I think it's because the joke is then that they were on the evening news and the evening news made a point to be like, like everybody was very upset except for this family who seemed unbothered and it was them pretending to not know him. I guess that's the thing is every story in here has like a punchline but no point. Yes, 100%. And so I get why it's in here. I get that that's like a funny family memory but it feels like he's like where can I get these family memories down for eternity? And I guess that's why this book is a yearbook in that it is a very specific like hags. <laughs> yeah. Like this is the kind of thing that you write very thoughtfully in the margins of everyone's fucking yearbook. And then if anyone ever looks at it again, that's stupid of them. But he is like, no, more people have got to hear these. Something interesting about Seth Rogen that I learned is yeah. I guess he has Tourette's. So his dad has Tourette's and he says he also has a mild case of Tourette's and is like basically everyone you know has it. Everyone's fidgety. And I'm like, I don't think that that's what that means. But he says he has ADHD and Tourette's and there have been like a number of effects throughout his life because of it. He said a lot of his childhood revolved around food because of the Tourette's. Everyone in his family had very specific eating habits, which is why they would go to this restaurant Bonanza for almost every meal. Then he has a chapter called Sons of Commandment, which is about being a young Jewish boy. Have you guys heard of bar and bat mitzvahs? I will say when I was little, man, I wanted a bat mitzvah so bad. Where's all your bat mitzvah money? Tied up in investments. <laughs> <laughs> you got an eye on that? I don't think any of my bat mitzvah money is liquid. <laughs> I just want to make sure you know where it is. What if it's tied up in Beanie Babies? <laughs> I feel like it's probably tied up in like Bonds of Israel. I'm pretty sure it is, yeah. <laughs> I think I actually cashed out some Bonds of Israel a couple of years ago. 
I wonder what kind of profit you've turned on your bat mitzvah money. Probably tens of twenties of dollars. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever wished you could just snap your fingers and have all of your recipe searching, grocery shopping, and meal planning done. But that is why I am so thankful for Hungry Root. I get so overwhelmed thinking about getting into cooking, what I'll cook, how I'll get all those ingredients together. But Hungry Root does it all for you. You never have to think about what's for dinner, breakfast, or lunch ever again. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality foods delivered to your door. They've got healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. You take a short, fun quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know you, your goals, and how you like to eat, what flavors you like, what kitchen appliances you use. They'll keep your needs top of mind and start building your cart. Hungry Root recommends groceries based on your tastes. Take their suggestions or choose anything you want. They've got fresh produce, high-quality meat and seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks and sweets, and so much more. I have really been trying to get into cooking lately. Claire just moved and has the most incredible new kitchen. And we are going to be cooking things. And listen, starting from scratch with cooking as a new hobby is daunting. When you don't have pantry staples, you don't have any basic recipes in your arsenal. It's very difficult to get going. But with Hungry Root, they do the hard parts for you. And now, baby, you'll catch me a stirring master by the end of this week. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Celebrity Memoir Book Club listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com worm to get 30% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know what we sent you. Anyway, I think the thing about being a part of a specific group of people is that no matter how any other public figure from within that group talks about it, you're always going to be like, well, that's not my experience. Like that is just always going to be the case. And because I'm Jewish, I always see people being like, it's a Jewish people thing. And then me being like, not my kind of Jewish people thing. He has the line in this book about how his house was very cluttered and messy. And he's like, lots of Jewish houses are like this. And I'm like, not in my experience. I know a lot of neat Jews. Me, don't call me cluttered, you bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody would say that about you. Anyway, so I do feel like sometimes the way it comes across to me is an overly bombastic expression to cover up for an almost embarrassment. Like you're presenting yourself as so other all the time. And maybe it's just me like wanting to fit in. Again, I want to like cover my own ass here because if other people relate to this, I don't want you to feel like you can't. But to me, it feels like he's trying so hard to be like, yeah, I know what I'm saying is weird. Everything I'm saying is weird because it's a Jewish thing. And I'm like, it's not that weird. He's like, Jews have a lot of odd traditions. They wear kippahs. They get circumcised. Like lots of cultures get circumcised. There just is a lot of being like, yeah, I know. I know what I'm saying is about to sound like so crazy. We went to overnight camp. Maybe it is crazy. Maybe I've just grown up in like such a Jewish culture that it doesn't ring as crazy to me. He was also raised in a super Jewish culture. exactly. And then he moved to Hollywood. And not to generalize, but I'm like, when have you felt like the odd man out? (laughs) Exactly. We'll get more into his discussion of anti-Semitism in this book. But I do feel like he is overcompensating to be like, yeah, I know all these traditions I'm talking about. They're fucking crazy. We're just Jews. That's what we do. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, (laughs) reel it in, big guy. So then in this book, he's talking about how much he loved doing the Cotton Eye Joe at Bat Mitzvahs, how he really wanted a girlfriend. And the stories in this chapter about Bar and Bat Mitzvahs pretty much exist to say how he met his best friends Evan, who he has written scripts with to this day, and how he couldn't get a girlfriend. That's like the two points of this chapter is that like girls thought he was weird, but he found boys who didn't think he was weird. 
He found them at a bar mitzvah because everyone else was trying to bump and grind. That would have been me. I was a bump and grinder from a young age. And he found these two boys that were collecting all of the glow sticks they could find and cracking them open and pouring the insides all over themselves so that they glowed. That's me. I was a glow stick freak. (laughs) Imagine if we could have combined forces and just glowed and grinded. (laughs) The glow and grind. Oh, my God. Imagine like glowing wieners from where you're bumping up on each other. (laughs) Like a crime scene in a motel. And there are just so many rehearsed bits throughout this book, like the way he's talking about with the glow sticks, like how much toxin did we wipe all over our bodies? And it's like, I don't know, I guess a lot. More than Ashley in her own apartment. (laughs) The next chapter is called The Karate Yid. And I will say this story, actually, I did find funny. He started taking karate classes because he didn't want anybody to fight him. He was scared to get into a fight in high school. That was one of his fears. And then ironically, of course, when everyone found out that he did karate, that made them want to fight him more. They were like, why do you do karate? He says. I learned a good lesson in karate, which was that just by not quitting, I'd progress. When I started, I was the worst of about 20 kids. After two or three years, I hung in there, and eventually everyone else who was ahead of me when I started the class dropped out, and I became the highest-ranking student. That is a life fucking advice. I watched this video one time when I was like 22 or 23 by Tanahasi Coates that had the exact same premise. And man, truer words never spoken. If you just stick with it at some point, you're one of the longest-running ones. (laughs) And that is something nobody can take from you. Nobody can take just like years of experience. And there's nothing more democratic than just like not quitting. Okay. One weird thing about this book is that he includes maps of his town. I actually made a TikTok joking about this the other day about how I think the least interesting thing that I could write in a memoir is how interesting I think it is that me and all my friends like lived on the same street. And I'm always like, so Maddie's house, which was one street down and then one up. He includes a literal map to show you like twice twice there are two maps of his town to like show you the proximity of things there's like a main one and then he references it later so he brings it back small i had no idea that was in here this chapter is basically about high school he and his friends partied a little bit one of his friends became a party legend on a day that it could have been really embarrassing for him to party he like would have passed out drunk but instead he jumped back up and drank more and everyone was like really impressed And I'm like, why are we on page 50 and you're still telling stories about getting drunk in high school? At this point in the book, I was thinking, did he peak in high school? Did he move to Hollywood to be on a TV show at 16 and still somehow peak in high school? He did karate all through high school and he never once went to a tournament. And then it turned out it's because his karate coach was banned from all tournaments. And they finally got into one and he goes, what you do is as soon as it starts, punch the kid in the neck and then kick him in the balls. And he did that. And the kid went down and he got screamed up by the ref and he was disqualified. He was like, why did you tell me to do that? I lost. He goes, look at that kid. That kid can't breathe. I think you won. <laughs> and I'm like, in some ways, so true. He also has this one line that I did enjoy as he talks about all the parties they had and none of them were that crazy, but they were just very regular high school kids. At one party, some kids stole an entire washer dryer from a house. They had a dolly and everything, so it seemed weirdly premeditated. I have no idea why they did that or what they ended up doing with them, but I sure as hell wasn't going to stop them. That's the story I want to hear. I want those kids to tell me, why did you go to somebody's house and steal their washer dryer? (laughs) I feel like as a parent, there's nothing I could be more mad about than having your washer dryer stolen. I'd be like, for the love of God, take an heirloom. Those aren't worth anything to me right now. I need to wash and dry my clothes. (laughs) So he's also addicted to porn. This is a whole chapter about how much she loves porn and the first porn he ever saw and how when he was little, he would VHS record any nudity in any movie and then like jerk off to it. He found a bunch of wet, wadded up porn in a gutter one time and he like took it home to dry it out. He got to go to the VN Awards and he talks about all the crazy award ceremonies there are. He also talks about one of the first porn DVDs he ever got. It was Cum Dumpsters 2. 
This is just a rehearsed bit that he has. He's like, I didn't see Cum Dumpsters 1, but I figured I'd get it. He has a couple jokes in here that I've heard so many times. The joke here that is funny, and it's not his own joke. It's the joke of cum dumpsters inherently. It's the, the genius editing of cum dumpsters is, I put the DVT into my compact laptop and waited for the movie to load. The screen went black, and then the image of an American flag waving in the wind slowly faded in. Then an elegant cursive appeared the words dedicated to those who lost their lives on September 11th. So this is what I wanted to talk about, because I'm like, that is a funny thing that clearly he just like saw once and was like, Well, it'd be funny if I got to be the one to tell people about this. Yeah, but really, there's some genius editor who's like, I'm the best comedy editor in this biz and nobody knows. I'm making so many people about to jerk off laugh. I hope that person is now the Vanderpump Rules editor because that's the best comedy editing in America. So good. The greatest comedy editors that there ever were. I love the editing on Vanderpump Rules. There is nothing funny. (laughs) So the button on this chapter was to talk about how he has watched all the porn on the whole internet because he watched porn after he moved into a nice house in Los Angeles with his wife. And he was like, oh, my God, that fountain in the porn is the fountain from our house. I guess this is porn from our house. I don't know. I guess Seth Rogen just really loves porn. You heard it here first or second. I don't know. He probably talks about it a lot. I feel like if you love porn this much, you've talked about it a bunch. Then he has the titular chapter in the titular book, your book, your book. <laughs> it's like Wilco, the song on Wilco, the album by Wilco, the band. This is like your book, the chapter within your book, the book. By your book, the man. <laughs> <laughs> and it is about how much he loves weed. The first time he ever smoked weed, he loved it. They like smoked the nugget itself. I think they didn't even know to grind it up. I wouldn't have known either. They had a very funny thing happen where his friend had bought a very fancy bong to smoke it out of and then he couldn't bring it back home. So they had to go back to the school high to put it in his locker. You guys know how funny it is, right? When someone is telling a story that was like really funny when they were high, but like you're reading it in a book sober. You know how like the funniest thing that's ever happened is two 14 year olds getting high together. You know how much funnier it can be when one of those 14 year olds grows up to be an adult and then retells the story still? And then when summer came, they didn't know how to get their weed because normally they bought weed from like people who knew school schedules and they also went on summer vacation. So they had to go to a nudes only beach to buy weed from a man who had a fanny pack on over his dingling. It's a funny thing to have happened to you. It's a funny thing to talk about at a party when someone's like, oh my God, do you remember like the first time you bought weed? But I don't know that it's funny enough for a book about your life. And then the final part of the story is that when they were in high school, they started selling weed to their friends. And this kid, Billy Yang, that they weren't really friends with and they weren't really nice to came up to him and he was like, hey, I have a hookup. You can buy a ton of weed for like 300 bucks. And they're like, whoa, that's crazy. So they go and they meet these 19-year-olds. For protection, they brought a bat and nunchucks. And then, of course, as soon as they got there, they smoked a little of the weed to test it out. And they think it was laced with PCP. And then the kids had butchered knives and said, give us all your money. It's a sting operation. Seth ran. His friend gave all the money and his grandparents' Holocaust necklace for some reason. And then they ended up having to buy back the Holocaust necklace for 150 bucks, which was like the rest of the money. And then 10 years later, they found out that they had, in fact, been set up by that kid who they were not nice to. And he's like, I guess it was fair then because, you know, he was the hero who used his brains to outwit the bronze. And then he goes into maybe one of the most unhinged weed chunks we've ever read in a book. He says, I used to think a lot about why I smoked weed, but honestly, I stopped because I realized the only reason I was thinking about it was because of the negative stigma. And the only reason it has a negative stigma is that it makes it easier for white people to control non-white people, which unfortunately is also the reason for a shitload of other things. He then follows it up with this crazy thing to say. There's stuff that makes our lives better that hasn't been stigmatized, and nobody gives those things a second thought. Nobody thinks about why we have a strong desire to wear shoes. Nobody says that people who wear shoes are denying reality. 
Instead, the consensus on our shoes is that we use them to adapt to reality. If we don't wear them, our feet will hurt. They make our journey more comfortable and we don't judge ourselves for wearing them. They don't make walking any less real. Nobody's ever like, you're not really experiencing walking. You're under the fog of footwear. They're like, yeah, our feet aren't made for walking in the environment we've settled in as a species. Wear shoes. That's why I smoke weed. It's additive to my journey. It makes getting from here to there more manageable and comfortable. There's this odd concept of functionality that people apply to some things but not others. People criticize weed for changing your view of reality, but sunglasses literally change your view of reality and nobody gives them a hard time for it. Weed is my sunglasses. Weed is my shoes. I'm not cut out for this world, but weed makes it okay. Sir, I have a question. What the fuck? <laughs> it is so crazy to be like, I'm not addicted to weed. What are you, racist? <laughs> if you want to smoke weed, I literally don't care, Seth Rogen. You're an adult man who's much more successful than me. If that's your prerogative, God bless. Weed does not have the same effect on your body as shoes and sunglasses. And you are correct in saying that there has been unfair treatment of the black community over weed. Sure, you're right. But to act like weed is not an addictive substance so that it, nobody should ever be questioned for copious amounts of drugs is an insane thing to say. Like, this is an insane hill to die on that nobody should ever be questioned about weed use. Eve bit into an apple in the Garden of Eden and now we all have to wear pants and you're questioning me eating weed for breakfast? Okay, cops. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then his first ever paid joke writing experience. He had started doing stand-up when he was like 12 and he would perform at this random lesbian bar that didn't make him leave immediately after his set. Can I say that's just one of the things that like, you know, in a court of law, I wouldn't hold against him, but did make me roll my eyes where he's like, when I started, wanted to do stand-up, I was 13 years old and I went to my parents and they should have said, no, of course you can't do stand-up. Heck, if a 30-year-old came to me, I'd say, no, don't do stand-up. But instead, they went out and found me stand-up classes. Isn't that crazy? And I'm like, it's actually not that crazy. Why is it any crazier than doing music theater or yeah. sports? I mean, there's parents who send their kids out into football practice where they will get a concussion and die. He's really obsessed with being like, how crazy is it that I did stand-up at 13? Especially because it sounds like his parents were huge comedy fans. He's like, my parents were huge comedy fans. They loved Ghostbusters, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Coming to America. Big. When Harry met Sally. I'm like, oh, so blockbuster hits. The big movies that everyone watched. <laughs> Didn't everyone go see those movies? Wasn't that why they were like the biggest movies? I actually will give him credit here for acknowledging that the reason he had some success in stand-up when he was young is because he was young. He was like, when a 13-year-old shows up to do a thing that mostly adults are doing, like there is just the novelty concept of it where they don't even have to be that good, but you're like, the fact that they're here is impressive. And he's like, that was my shtick for the most part. And he was just talking about girls in school and toothpaste and whatever. And then a moil, like a Jewish bris purveyor. That is not how I was pronouncing those letters. It's confusing. Nothing is spelled with the letters they use. <sighs> Anyway, so Amoyle hires him to write jokes for him. He works really hard on writing these jokes. And then the guy is not like that thrilled with them. They actually were funny jokes. I mean, I'm sure he actually was not bad at stand-up. He's obviously gone on to have a ton of success in the comedy world. Yeah, it seems like he's a pretty good comedy writer. And then, you know, the guy didn't want to pay him for all the jokes. And he's like, well, I wouldn't have worked so hard on so many jokes if I wasn't going to get paid for them. And so then the guy reluctantly gives him money. And 20 years later, his mom calls him and was like, guess what? I was just at a bris. He's still using your jokes. And he says it was a lesson in killing your darlings, kind of, to be like, okay, just because you wrote something doesn't mean everyone has to like it. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's nice. That's true. That's what I learned from copywriting for bedsheets. Size matters. But like they say, it's not just the size of the boat. It's the motion of the ocean. It's the number of pockets. 
I think that this analogy went off the rails, but you get it. With my base weekender bag, there is room for everything. It is like a Mary Poppins bag. I can't believe how much space there is in one weekender bag. With hyper-functional and chic designs, you've got all the nooks and crannies and even some surprise space to effortlessly fit it all in and you don't have to settle for anything less. Base was created by the actress Shay Mitchell to make sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories designed to help you travel effortlessly while still looking good. Their luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors, and for shorter trips, the Weekender bag is super functional and even has a place to store your shoes separately. I love not having to worry about my shoes touching the rest of my items, especially when you have laundry that you didn't touch on your trip and now you're like, well, it's dirty anyway because it touched shoes. Not anymore with the Weekender bag. I have been taking it on all of our trips lately. I took it on a bachelorette trip. I've been taking it on tour. It is the most wonderful bag to have to store all of our little items in, props for the show, recording equipment for the road, clothes to wear, outfit change options. The Weekender bag has saved my life this month. Right now, Base is offering listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash worm. Go to basetravel.com slash worm for 15% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash worm. And then somehow we're back talking about porn, a specific one called The Fisherman's Wife, if you guys have seen it. And he's doing jokes and he finally gets a girlfriend and she breaks up with him after two days. And so somebody's like, stop doing silly jokes about crazy glue. Do something about what's real in your life. And he's like, my heart's broken. And they were like, talk about that. So he talks about that online and the bits work and people like the real stuff much better than his funny little jokes like, what's the deal with crazy glue? It's not that crazy. It just works. It was the first time I turned real anguish into comedy and I was proud of it. Probably way too proud. So proud that I didn't really take the time to look at it from Moira's perspective. Moira's the girl who broke up with him. And eventually got back to her that I was telling a joke about her. And she always said it was fine. But what the fuck else was she going to say? And then he says when they made Super Bad, they named all of the characters in it after real people they went to high school with. And they asked her permission to name Emma Stone character her name. And she said no. And he's like, I never really thought about it from her perspective. How much it must have sucked to have me doing jokes about her all the time. I guess I wonder if it did. The joke was like about how their relationship only lasted three days. I guess I wonder if there were more jokes. It's like way too good guy behavior in a way that I'm like suspicious because I'm like, why are you so apologetic for something that seems pretty innocent? If you just were joking about how short their relationship was, why would that be embarrassing to her? She doesn't know. You weren't using her name. Who cares? It was like overly considerate in this way where I'm like, this isn't the problem. Yeah, it's one of those things where you're like, this is just obviously not the whole story because this story in itself is not interesting at all. But then it does fit in because like none of this book is that interesting at all. He's in L.A. and he's 18 years old. He goes, I had just bought my first car, the Acura that would later get destroyed on my first date with my wife. Freaks and geeks had been canceled and I was unemployed. Can you imagine in a Seth Rogen memoir jumping to when Freaks and Geeks is canceled? Something that he does that I find so rude in this book is anything you're interested in, he refuses to talk about, even from like a very boring memoir-y perspective. The idea that you would just skip how you got from high school to being fired from Freaks and Geeks. I'm like, those are some key years. I mean, he right before this tells a two-page story about how Jerry Seinfeld is kind of an inconsiderate asshole when he like does something that all successful comedians do. And then he just jumps right to Freaks and Geeks getting canceled. And it's like, okay, when did you even move to L.A.? There's no emotional truth to this book at all. Like, what was it like when you got an opportunity in L.A. and you told your parents, like, I'm 17 years old and I need to move to Los Angeles for this job? In the back, he has a quote from his mom reviewing the book. And she's like, well, it's not really a memoir. And I'm like, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's just a collection of stories he would tell to a fan he was stuck in an elevator with that he had to amuse but didn't really want to be honest with. So then this story is about how he had to fire his first manager who was always giving him shit for not having a fax machine. And he fired him. 
And the day he fired him, he was bringing him a fax machine. So he left that breakup date with a fax in hand. The thing is, the worst story in the world is somebody's like boring, I was so high I puked or I was so high I got nervous stories. He has like 10 of them. And this story starts out with like a three-page retelling of how he was going to Amsterdam with his buddy. They were taking separate flights because his friend was coming from Canada and he was coming from LA. And he's like, I can't believe that before cell phones, we just thought we would get to Amsterdam and find each other. And then they just do find each other. There's no climax to the story. It's just him being like, can you believe we thought that that would work? It did. The truth of the matter is it's not hard to meet up with somebody if you just go to the place you're supposed to on time. And then, of course, they go to a sex show because he is obsessed with weed and porn. So they watch people have sex. And then they buy mushrooms and they are very different in Amsterdam and much stronger. And they just shit all over the place and puke all over the place and leave for Paris early because they're so horrified by how bad they puked in Amsterdam. And then they're like, have you ever done drugs so bad you ended up in a different country? And I'm like, I mean, no, but only because I live in America where a different country is much further away than it is if you're in Europe. I bet you if I lived in Europe, I would have done drugs to the point where I ended up in a different country at some point. And then it's after being on two failed TV shows in 2001, I found myself... When was the second failed TV show? So now he's just this unemployed actor, writer, feeling mad that he's not getting anything. And he actually gets an opportunity to write for Sasha Baron Cohen on the Ali G show. They come up with the idea of him going to spring break. And because the Ali G show is British, they're like, what do you mean go to spring break? That's a week of the year. That's not a place you can fly. And they're like, oh, Ali G, why don't you study the cultures you are a part of? He is like weirdly resentful of a lot of comedians and a lot of other people in the industry. In this section, he's like, it was really nice of Sasha Baron Cohen to hire us when he liked our idea. A lot of people would just take the idea and steal it from you. And I'm like, okay, but he didn't. You got hired. Anyway, so there he goes and he's writing with his best friend, Evan. They're a writing partner. And then another guy on the show gets cancer and somehow... Somehow he parlays that cancer into finding a wife. Yeah. So he goes to a party and talks up what a good cancer friend he is. And he impresses this girl, Lauren. And they're actually married to this day. And I will say the one redeeming quality of Seth is it does seem like he really loves his wife. Yeah. I'm proud of how much he loves his wife. And that feels like a bare minimum for a man to treat with respect the woman he chose to partner up with. But unfortunately, that's quite a high bar in these memoirs. So... Hats off. He also turned his friend's cancer into the movie 50-50. So he got a wife and a movie. And all his friend got was his lousy health. He also talks about a date he almost went on, but she had an audition for the new Superman reboot directed by now-disgraced creepo Brian Singer. Interesting which now-disgraced creepos you will and will not align yourself with or call out. He has this way of flippantly acknowledging social justice without ever really saying or doing anything. Yeah, because then immediately he's complaining about Project Greenlight, which is something he had an audition for. And I guess Project Greenlight, from what I can tell, was a reality series where people try to get their movies off the ground. It was a show created by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, which posed the question, does the Hollywood system work? Does it actually award the best filmmakers the opportunity to make films? Or are there those out there who are just as talented but don't have connections opportunities? They also literally only picked white dudes to direct movies in every single season of the show. So they weren't really granting opportunities to the people who wouldn't have probably gotten them anyway. Seth Rogen out there adding diversity to film was super bad. An untold story of three white kids. I went through a handful of movies that he has produced and he has produced a lot of TV shows too. And they have a little bit more of a diverse director roster when he has 24 episodes to dole out. It looks like every now and then he'll give a non-white guy a chance. But his movies are overwhelmingly directed by white guys. And it's like, okay, I guess why this call out then? Like, what are you doing to change or help things? And so it's about how he really liked Lauren. And then 
at one point early on, he shit his pants. This was the most disgusting story I've ever read. We can't recap it. He had just come, I'm going to do it. He had just come <sighs> back from Mexico. She picked him up from the airport. He's like, isn't that amazing to have a girlfriend who picks you up from the airport? And as he was walking her to the car the next day, he like shit his pants in his own apartment. Here's where it gets weird. Why didn't he just change? Yeah, instead of changing, instead of stopping, he like walked her to her car two blocks away. Pants full of shit. <laughs> and said, I love her and I hope I get to spend the rest of my life with her and that one day I can tell her about this because if anyone would appreciate this story, it's her. Why in your own home? Are you walking around your own home full of shit? I don't understand. And he's like, I hope she couldn't smell it. She could. It's just now dawning on me how crazy it was that he shit his pants in his own fucking house and was like, there's nothing to do but go out into the world. That's the opposite of what you do when you shit your pants. Stay inside. Then we move on to 2012. What year has it been before this? Who knows? He hasn't explained a single thing. Actually, this is one fun story. So he gives a couple of like real celeb tales. And in a book of very little purpose, at least he gives us some dirt. This chapter was just about how he met Steven Spielberg and then George Lucas came to the meeting and George Lucas like really thought the world was going to end in 2012. And he was sure that the Andreas fault line was going to collapse and everybody to the west of it was going to sink into the ocean and he does have a rocket ship like ready to take off for when the aliens come down. I do think to call out George Lucas like that is a pretty big deal because he is one of the most powerful people in the industry. They said, never meet your heroes. I say meet them, but be ready for them to not invite you onto their spaceship. After the Steven Spielberg meeting, he says, we left the meeting in a daze. I remember Evan saying in the car, if we're going to rip off the last Starfighter, I'm not sure we need Steven Spielberg to do it with us. We can probably just rip it off by ourselves. So the reason they met Steven Spielberg was that they had always wanted to do a sequel to this movie they loved. The guy wouldn't give up the rights to the movie. And Steven Spielberg was like, I want to do a sequel to this movie I love. And they're like, we love that movie, but he won't give up the rights. And Steven's like, yeah, you just do it anyway. So then many years later, they do end up both just doing different versions of that movie. Theirs is called Future Man, which is something I've never heard of. And Spielberg's was Ready Player One. I don't know. I don't think that this was like a flattering Steven Spielberg chapter. No, to be like, I don't care that this guy won't sell me the rights to his movie. We'll steal it. But they did the exact same thing. And at least I've heard of Spielberg's. I will say the point of the story is to make fun of George Lucas, though. Yeah. I don't know that this is necessarily a, a dig at Spielberg, but it was like, a, can you believe that George Lucas is Loki a freak? And also, of course, I can believe that. Oh, my God. And then we have three stories about bad times he got high. Once he got an airplane hungover and got high and then had an angry Whopper from Burger King. And everyone thought he had a seizure, but really he was just snorting. He was like snoring and sweating so bad on the plane because he was like high and ate an angry Whopper from Burger King. And he like hates Burger King. He says it's the worst fast food out there. And then the next time his wife's dad, they got him high and he was so high that he like passed out at a restaurant. So it's funny, Claire was saying before we started recording this, this book is very pro-drug. It's very like, if you don't do drugs. Well, it's, not, it's very, why would you criticize drugs? Why is there a negative stigma around drugs? Like, it's totally unfair that anybody would even question a weed smoker because alcohol is so bad for you. And then he's like, anyway, here are the amount of times that the paramedics may or may not have been involved in my drug experiences. Also, I've shit my pants a lot. <laughs> he literally says later, nothing bad ever happens to you when you smoke weed and there's never any negative side effects the next day. And I'm like, dude, this whole book is about time smoking weed went bad. And then he tells a story about meeting Nicolas Cage. This one I liked. This is a fun celebrity name drop. He talks about meeting Nicolas Cage. They wanted him to be in The Green Hornet, which was a movie that didn't go well. There's a lot of pages about how that movie was a long back and forth between lots of people that may or may not have wanted to be in it, trying to find a director. So it seems like what happens with these movies is when they agree to do it, they basically start chopping it up 
And it has nothing to do with the movie itself. They want to get bankable stars. So originally they got this one guy who would only be in it if he was allowed to rewrite the movie completely. And at one point he wanted the Green Hornet to involve like an AIDS story. And Seth was like, I don't think that this is really what that movie is about. And so then when that guy went and signed on because he couldn't rewrite it completely, they got just a K-pop star who didn't speak English. And it's supposed to be a buddy comedy. And it really, I get it. It's hard to have a buddy comedy with somebody who doesn't speak the language. And they're like, they didn't care at all that that ruins the movie because to them, they're like, this guy's going to sell huge overseas. So then they are like, what if we get Nicolas Cage to play the villains? They go to a meeting with Nicolas Cage and Nicolas Cage has all these crazy ideas that I think sound good for a villain. They said he wants to wear fake lips and tattoo his hair on. And then Nicolas Cage, no, no, I want to save the hair tattoo for real life. <laughs> he comes up with this idea and then he goes, actually, maybe not the tattooed hair. That's something I might want to do in real life. So it may be weird if I also do it in a movie. And then he also says, I want to be a white Bahamian. And he tells them this through one of the movie execs. And Seth is like, what do you mean? Like, what is that? And, and she's like, apparently Nicolas Cage met a white Bahamian when he rented snorkels from him one time on a trip. And he's like, does that mean he's just going to be a white guy that does an accent? And she's like, it seems like yes. So then they get dinner and Nicolas Cage sits down and does the accent for them. And Seth is like, uh, I don't know if that's what we're picturing. So Nicolas Cage just goes, I have to leave. And he just walks out. And then years later, Nicolas Cage requests another meeting with them. And this is after James Franco has done Spring Breakers. He is trying to shop around a movie and it gets sent to Seth Rogen's production company. So they have a meeting and they're like, I don't know. Nicolas Cage said he had a really awkward dinner with you one time and he wants to meet with you before you produce his movie. So they sit down. And Nicolas Cage did not want them to produce the movie. He just wanted to sit down face to face and be like, did you tell James Franco about my white Bahamian idea? <laughs> and did he steal that for Spring Breakers? And Seth was like... No, he was a SoundCloud rapper in that movie. He didn't have a Bahamian accent. And Nick is like, well, I really wanted to ask if you stole that from me. And then he just got up and left again before they even got appetizers. The Green Hornet came out, did fine, got bad reviews and basically became a punchline, which is better than nothing, I guess, especially for someone who works in comedy. It's interesting that he really changes his tune on whether or not your movie being a punchline is a good thing when the interview comes out. If you like Nicolas Cage, I think the tattooed hair idea is really good, actually. <laughs> What does that mean to you? I think to me it means he looks like a Lego. <laughs> okay, can I ask a question? Are the hairs tattooed on in the style of Charlie Brown, like individual hairs? Or is it just sharpied on like a dry erase marker? I was imagining it sharpied on <laughs> with wisps in the front. And you want to do prosthetic lips and I don't know. For a villain, bald Nicolas Cage with sharpied on hair and prosthetic lips, I don't know. Villainous. That is nefarious. I do think we need to ask him what type of tattoo. Yeah, but if you want to be in Bitchness is the mini movie this summer with tattooed hair and prosthetic lips, I would actually really be on board with it. Okay, can I just clarify really quick before people text us? This offer is only open to Nicolas Cage. <laughs> if he's listening. Someone sent it to him. I'm sure one of the Coppolas listens to our podcast. A nephew. Distant nephew. <laughs> I don't know if you've taken the love language test and found that maybe you like physical touch, quality time. Well, Dipsy has invented a whole new love language with sexy stories for whatever mood you're in. Dipsy is an app full of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. Dipsy releases brand new content every single week, so in between listening to some of your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy stories you can read. 
Let Dipsy be your go-to place for me time to explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or heat things up with a partner. Dipsy has some stories that I didn't even know I wanted to hear. I decided to go on a deep dive through Dipsy's app. Instead of just sticking with my tried and true faves, I decided to get to know everything they have to offer. And let me tell you what, Sometimes it's nice to sit down and indulge in what you know you like, but other times you might not even know what you want to hear, and Dipsy will help you find it. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash worm. dipsystories.com slash worm. So then he has a chapter about all the rappers he's ever met. Yeah, he loves to talk about meeting rappers and how they're weirder than actors because when you're a musician, you like don't have to meet anyone in real life if you don't want to. And if you're an actor, you have to like be on set around humans. And he says at the Grammys, they give every single artist their own green room, which is different than at, say, the Oscars or the Emmys. And he was asked by Eminem to to introduce him and Dre. And so he goes and he wants to go meet Eminem. And he has a beer in his hand and the security says, you can't go and meet Eminem with a beer in your hand. He's sober. And he was like, oh, yeah, I wasn't going to give it to him. They're like, no, he doesn't want any beer in there. And Seth acts like this is so fucking crazy. He's like, what's going to happen if he sees the beer? Oh, he's going to get. And it's like, I don't know, man. He may be tempted to drink it. Maybe when you're entering his green room at his event, respect his boundaries. I don't this isn't like the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. I don't think Seth comes off as good as he thinks he is and being like, oh, was not it going to do spiral relapse? <laughs> maybe like literally maybe. Oh, the addict has no self-control around alcohol. <laughs> oh, you drink too much alcohol. Have you tried not drinking it? Yeah, that's what he's trying, man. <laughs> And then he tells another story about a time Snoop Dogg was doing a song for one of his movies and Snoop Dogg agreed to do a hook. And then last minute, he's like, well, could you also rap a verse? And Snoop Dogg agrees. And he just says, bring in the hose. The guy left. And within 30 seconds, he had returned with five or six women who were very much dressed like strippers at the start of a routine. The producer blasted the beat and the women danced and drank while Snoop wrote a rap verse on his Blackberry. After about 20 minutes, he was finished writing and gestured to the guy who escorted the hose out, vanishing as mysteriously as he appeared. And then he goes, this obviously raised a lot of questions. Where were the hose up until this point? Why were the hose there? Were they there just in case? If so, wouldn't he need the hose's presence? Blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, he goes, why have I been saying hose this whole time? I definitely shouldn't do that. And I would say this to me is the problem with Seth Rogen and that he knows he shouldn't. He does it anyway. He still does the joke. And then he tries to like get credit for having not done the joke. Yeah. You don't get to be like, I know better than to call women hose after having done it for pages and pages. You needed to get the laugh five times before you were like, I shouldn't say that. Because like, okay, get the laugh or acknowledge that's not something you should be saying and don't say it. But you can't be like both on one page. Yeah. He also tells a funny story about Kanye where he is like, it turns out his personal trainer was right around the corner from my house. So we would see each other and he like liked my movies. So one day he came over to my house and asked if I wanted to play basketball, but I was so hungover. I said no. And then he sees Kanye West in a hotel one time and Kanye's like, do you want to hear music off my new album in my van? And so they go to his like tricked out RV And he just plays four hours of music for them in a row, rapping over the beats and like explaining what the song is going to sound like, which is something that I think he does to a lot of people. I think he loves doing that. And then he says afterwards, and this is actually where it got funny, he showed him a full storyboard for a movie he wanted to make that was basically an allegory for the fall of Adam and Eve, but done with very sexy cats. It would be like an IMAX situation where you feel like you were amongst the sexy cats. And that is like a very funny thing to be pitching to somebody. 
He said he had mock-ups of Kim Kardashian as like one of the very sexy cats. And then finally, he says, I don't have any real deep insight into Kanye and his current state of mind or being other than to say that I really love his music and my interactions with him have been lovely. But I'm sure a lot of people have said the same thing about a lot of people who have made incredibly shitty comments. I recently read about a phenomenon where everyone assumes their actions are based on love and the actions of those they disagree with are based on hate. I don't think Kanye is hateful. I think he's grasping and struggling to make his way through life. And as painless as his experiences seem, there's no pain more painful than your own pain. And that goes for everyone, even Kanye. That said, I really wish he would shut the fuck up about all his political bullshit. That doesn't help anything. And so this is obviously before I think Kanye was on like an anti-Semitic tirade, but to end it, which is like a glazed over. (laughs) That being said, I wish he'd shut up with this politics stuff. You're right. He does need to decide between taking a stance on something or not saying anything. Like the way that he just glides in there to be like, I know this shit's fucked up is annoying and it gets worse. So then we talk about the interview. Do you guys remember this movie? It was a movie where James Franco plays a well-liked American TV presenter who gets the opportunity to go to North Korea to interview Kim Jong-un because he is a known fan of pop culture and apparently he loves this television presenter. So he goes to North Korea to interview Kim Jong-un and the CIA is like, hey, while you're over there, could you kill him? (laughs) And then he becomes friends with him. Hilarity ensues. They thought. They thought hilarity would ensue. Instead, North Korea got so mad. Yeah, so first they have a cut of this movie. And apparently North Korea had hacked into the Sony system and watched the movie. Also, a really important detail, which I would honestly believe is the entire reason this book was written, is because he says initially they wrote it with a fake dictator in mind who was based off of Kim Jong-un. Like all of the characteristics and everything based on Kim Jong-un, but they just called him something else. And then Sony was like, why don't you just make it Kim Jong-un? And the fact that it was someone else's suggestion, especially the studio's suggestion to do that, is very important to him. So they make this movie and then North Korea through the UN says, if you put out this movie, we will recognize it as like an act of terrorism by the United States. So now they're kind of like, well, what do we do next? And so they call in a risk assessment guy. The risk assessment guy is like, there is a risk. I've assessed it. Risk positive. And they're like, we're pretty sure they have hacked into the Sony system now and watched the movie. That's how they've seen it. So be careful. They're coming for you guys. They'll keep hacking and making things worse. And so Seth stops using Sony servers altogether and brings in like a internet safety person. Meanwhile, Sony, as we know, got hacked big. (laughs) The Sony hack, for those who don't remember, was a big expose situation. Sony servers were hacked. A lot of fucked up emails were surfaced. I mean, a lot of their higher ups ended up having to step down because of the contents of their emails. And Seth is like, I can't believe the Hollywood reporter would report on that. It's pretty fucked up. Things were stolen. And then you're going to use those stolen things against us. (laughs) Anyway, he hates Sony because their big thing is they kept saying, let's figure out a way to make this movie less offensive to North Korea. Like, let's not make him so blown up. So there was like a months long back and forth where they were fighting over how blown up they could make Kim Jong-un's head. Could they show it burning? Could they show it exploding? How long could the hair be on fire? At one point, an email said, I've given a lot of thought and I would like to go ahead with a variation of a version 337. So like they were really going back and forth. And Seth's big thing is like, if we're not going to show the head explosion the way I want it, I can't lie in these interviews and say that this is what I wanted. So he's in this back and forth with the studio about whether or not he's going to lie to be like, it was my idea about how the movie specific blow up ending happens because I wanted it to be a different blow up ending. It's a really interesting hill to die on in this circumstance. 
So then it's like the night of the premiere, the day before it goes out, and they're still finalizing what that final scene will look like. And apparently, I've never seen the interview, but I guess there's like a 14-second fire clip where his head is on fire and nothing's happening. And it's because they couldn't actually shorten the clip itself. They could only fuck with effects. Anyway, so they sign off. And then the day it's supposed to go to theaters, I guess there's all these threats that people who go to the movies will be killed if they see this movie. So Sony pulls the film. Seth is really mad that the film got pulled. He's like, how dare you? And I'm kind of like, I don't know, Seth. If people had died in that film, would you have been like, I'm glad it was put out. That was worth it. Those people died in honor. Yeah, I do feel like it's one of those things where you're like, I know for you this sucks. I don't know. It's not even your first movie. It's not your big break. But it was the biggest movie they had ever done, I think. It was the first movie that had ever been greenlit right away. I don't know. I can't imagine thinking anything I'm doing is so important that if people were going to die, I'd be like, no, keep going. Yeah, I agree. And I'm not saying there's nothing that's so important that lives can't be risked. But a comedy movie about a Ryan Seacrest type assassinating Kim Jong-un, I don't think that that is the hill to die on. Like, it sucks that all that work goes away. Like, it really does suck. And I think that, you know, if I I was someone who put a lot of time and work into that movie, I'd be really disappointed to see, like, years of work go into the garbage. But, I mean, they've pulled stuff for less. Exactly. Anyway, so he goes into the guy's office and is like, you said you wouldn't pull it. And the guy was like, there was death threats. And he was like, what, are we just going to bow down to dictators? The press was split in a lot of ways at this point because there was a ton of don't poke the bear messaging being thrown our way, which is crazy. I agree. Don't poke a bear. But dictators aren't bears. Bears are animals that don't know any better than to follow their natural instincts. Dictators are pieces of shit who deserve ridicule. Yeah, I don't know. You're right. Good job. Dictators are bad. And nobody understands that more than James Franco. (laughs) So he gets really mad that the movie's been pulled. And the president of the company is like, well, let's wait to see what Obama thinks. And the next day, Obama's, I guess, giving his State of the Union address or something. And he does, in fact, bring it up. He's like, let's see who Obama sides with. And so they're watching. And sure enough, Obama says, Sony is a great corporation. It suffered significant damage. There were threats against its employees. I am sympathetic to the concerns that they faced. Having said that, yes, I think they made a mistake. We cannot have a society in which some dictators, some place can start imposing censorship here in the United States. Because if somebody is able to intimidate folks out of releasing a satirical movie, imagine what they start doing when they see a documentary they don't like or a news report they don't like. Or even worse, imagine if producers and distributors and others sat engaging in self-censorship because they don't want to offend the sensibilities of somebody whose sensibilities probably need to be offended. And so now Seth is like, see, I was right. And eventually, a few months later, it gets released on Google Play and some theaters and it gets universally panned. The question of was it worth it for this movie became a popular one. If the critics had liked it more, would it have been more worthwhile? Because it didn't align with their taste, it wasn't. The conversation was frustrating and, frankly, really painful. And he's like, I can't understand when the media did it, but when other comedians made fun of how bad the movie was, that was a low blow. What happened to you thinking it's funny to be a punchline? I mean, it is like a valid question, and I do think it is like a larger question of how far does freedom of speech go? What is worth it? Like, when is art not worth it? That being said, I don't know that Seth is really engaging in this meaningfully. I think he just had a movie he wanted to make at all costs. And the way that he's like, it's just because it wasn't your taste. I don't know. I think you can admit when a movie does not pan out when it is bad. I think that he really only has passionate energy for things that affect him directly, which you can't have energy for every single problem ever in the world. I understand that. But like, who are you helping right now? I also do secretly think that Obama had spoken to the president of Sony and said, I need you to cancel this movie. And then the Sony president expected Obama to praise it. 
But I think Obama was like, it's a bad look for me to say, oh, yeah, we should succumb to the wants of a dictator. But also, I think he's like, not right now. This is like annoying. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to have to deal with a potential nuclear attack from North Korea because they're mad over a James Franco movie. And then he like goes in on the rest of Sony after a bunch of people had to step down because of the email leaks. He was like, Amy took our office and like made us move into the basement. He just has like a lot of hate for every executive at Sony. And then he makes fun of how much Trump sucks. And he's like, wow, if Trump had been president when this all happened, they would have sent me to North Korea in a box. I guess that's the thing is there is a conversation to be had here about like freedom of speech and art and satire. He did not have it. He feels that his shitty movie should have been given all the respect in the world and that the premise was so good. How dare Sony question it? Especially because the button on this chapter is like TV host who becomes friends with Kim Jong-un. That was Trump. The next chapter is about how it turns out there's a lot of wild tigers in North Korea. So they had to get a tiger handler for the movie. And then this tiger handler, it turns out, did not have it as handled as they thought. And Seth Rogen almost got eaten by a tiger. Even though when he tells the story, I'm like, I don't know. It sounds like the tiger was pretty well behaved. But then he like donates a bunch of money to get this tiger trainer shut down because he's like he was not really good at his job and shouldn't have been out there handling tigers. But again, it's like anything that affects him personally. I'm like, what are you doing about the overall like mistreatment of animals in film? Jack shit. This one tiger trainer pissed you off. And so you like donated money to get his business shut down. After using him. After using him. That's the thing is like you still needed it you for your movie. You didn't say, hey, is the well-being of this animal more important than the scene in the movie? You said, once we get our joke in, then justice can be served. Exactly. And this is a pattern that will repeat now. So the next chapter is about Twitter. He hates Twitter, although you can still find him on Twitter with over 9 million followers. He didn't really think anti-Semitism was real. He knew it was real, but he'd never seen it in person, except for one time in an elevator with the comedian Eddie Griffin, who he talks about how he's like just washed up and sucks. And it's like, okay. So after Eddie Griffin was anti-Semitic to Seth Rogen, he talks about joining Twitter and really seeing a lot of anti-Semitism up close and personal. And he messaged Jack at Jack, Jack Dorsey, the inventor of Twitter, to be like, why are people so anti-Semitic on this platform? Can you shut it down? And Jack would give him platitudes and be like, well, it's a work in progress. Uh, You'll see. We're thinking about it. And Seth is like, no, but are you doing it? And he just goes on a tear about how Jack is essentially responsible for brutal and deadly attacks on Jewish people. Jack from Twitter is responsible for the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, he has a lot to say about what Jack from Twitter could and couldn't have stopped. I don't think it's all on Jack from Twitter, but I am like, well, then why are you still on Twitter? If you think Twitter is this like horrendous platform that enables terrorists and white supremacists, which it is, get off Twitter. You're writing this whole chapter about like the things they've done and you're contributing to the platform. It's like important for him to get his bag. The last tweet, I saw that he tweeted in January this year, like a ad for Airbnb. So it's like, well, this platform is still important to you to like make an extra couple thousand dollars this month. But like you've really made a point about how it's pure evil. And then we get into Tom Cruise. Yeah, Seth takes a wild swing here and says Tom Cruise is an unhinged Scientologist. So Tom Cruise wants to meet him and Judd Apatow after the success of Knocked Up in 2006 when he was on his jumping on the couch era. So they go to meet Tom. And so basically, this is an image rehab, right? At this point in time, everybody was turning on Tom. Everybody's like, oh, he's crazy. And he needed to make America love him again for Mission Impossible to work. So he needed a comedy. So they meet with Judd and him. And then he goes on this whole rant about 
how the pharmaceutical company is cutting up all of the interviews he does to make him seem crazier. Like, sure, he jumped on the couch, but Oprah turned that against him, that they edit it so that they can lie about you. And he goes, you should see what they did to my friend Louis Farrakhan. And then this is Seth being like, you know, Tom just wants to use us for comedy to like get his Scientology agenda back on the upswing. And Judd's like, but I think we could use it. (laughs) A few months later, he signed on to be in Tropic Thunder. He was hilarious and everyone loved him again the second they saw it. Once again, not really taking a massive swing here. God, then we have some awful story about the time he did acid. Yeah, he had avoided acid for a really long time and then he did acid and it was fine. And then he was like, well, you haven't really done acid until you've done too much acid. So then he does too much acid and then things are still fine. I don't know. Like nothing really bad ever happens to him. This also makes me laugh. He's talking again about how amazing drugs are and how dare anybody stigmatize them. I think I also keep yapping about drugs like acid, MDMA and shrooms because of how incredibly fucking bothered I am that they're viewed as these big bad wolves compared to alcohol which is both way more prevalent and way more shitty for you. Like if I told you there was a drug that you drank and it made you have fun for like an hour and then it made you dizzy for three hours, then you blacked out, then the entire day you had a terrible headache and generally felt like shit, you probably wouldn't be clamoring to try it. But alcohol is so mainstream and it's somehow overcome the fact that it sucks. If I have two glasses of wine, I feel like shit the next day. And the sugar and carbs are objectively bad for your health. I've done so much acid that the desert itself crashed like waves on a beach. It has no sugar, no carbs. In fact, for the next day, I felt fucking fantastic. Let me tell you, I've seen people come down from MDMA. They're not feeling fucking fantastic. I don't care what anybody does, but you cannot sit here and be like, nobody's ever had an ecstasy hangover. I like drugs. (laughs) I do some of them and I do believe that they need to be consumed responsibly. And I also believe that they have consequences. For him to sit here and be like, oh, you think... Oh, you think a plane crash is bad? Well, actually, there's way more car crashes. And it's like, okay, I don't know. I think that they're both dangerous. And it's up to you what you choose, but you have to acknowledge that there are consequences with both. I think this line that was right before that is actually quite interesting. All this likely begs the question, what's wrong with you, Seth? Why do you do so many drugs and why can't you stop talking about it? The best answer that I can come up with is they give me insights into my own thinking, feeling, and behavior in ways that I haven't found elsewhere. And they're super fun. I mean, try thinking, though. That's what I have to say to it. This whole book is so thoughtless. Try thinking. You need drugs because you like have no insight into your feelings otherwise. Try. His next chapter is about Steve Wozniak from the film Steve Jobs, who he played. And so he played him in the Steve Jobs movie. And I guess Steve Jobs doesn't even know how to code or program or do anything. He was all marketing. Yeah. And this is the guy who actually invented the computer. And he got to play him. He said he was super cool. They got to go to the Magic Castle, which, you know, is my personal dream. I know that two Wormies at our LA show in 2022 gave me tickets to the Magic Castle, but they expired before I got back to LA. So (laughs) I think we'll probably be back in LA in the fall. If you have a way to get me into the Magic Castle, please let me know because it is still a dream of mine. Anyway, he tells the story about going to the Magic Castle. One time he went with a friend, quote unquote, named James, who was so stoned that he ruined the whole show for everybody because he couldn't remember the card that he had in his hand. With all the name dropping in this book, there are a lot of loosey-goosey first names when you're like, is this the one that I think you're talking about? Or is this, you just have a different friend named James? It's possible. There's a lot of Jameses out there. Anyway, for him to be like, there's nothing bad that can happen to drugs and then tell a story about ruining the experience of Magic Castle goers. I'm like, that to me is the meanest thing anyone's ever done. So he goes with this guy and his wife and he's like, even though he doesn't get any of the credit, he still lives a pretty nice life. I'm sure he's worth like hundreds of millions of dollars. I actually guess I was never worried about the other inventor of Apple who then invented the universal remote. I've never once been like, I hope that billionaire gets more credit. To be a billionaire in quiet is like the dream. Yeah. I believe Quavo said, I'd rather be rich than famous. That's so smart. He's just like 
keeps throwing these incredible music festivals that cost him millions of dollars and he doesn't make back. But he gets to like have the most amazing time at his dream concert. I'm not worried about a guy spending $20 million on his dream concert. Yeah, it seems like he's doing okay. And then the final chapter of this book is about going to Jewish summer camp. He explains what Jewish summer camp is. And then he talks about how he almost died there because they like made them go real camping and it was dangerous. He deals a John Mulaney bit. Really? Did you notice that? No. He says, you have these kids aged 8 to 15 and led by counselors aged 17 to 19, which looking back is batshit fucking insane. It's like leaving your dog in the care of a slightly bigger dog in a facility that is managed by other dogs of various sizes. The analogy ran out of steam fast, but you get the idea. John Mulaney has a whole bit about how when you're babysitting little kids, it's like you're leaving your dogs with your horse. It's a very similar joke. It ends with him being like, looking back, I don't know if it was a big deal or not a big deal that we thought we were going to get lost in the woods. And then he meets somebody else. And the other guy was like, no, it was very scary. It's very telling to me that the only stories he has in this book are times that he feels slighted. Like the only entertainment industry stories in this book are times that like someone else was mean to him or not what he expected. I guess the thing is he's wrote a long and hard and wet career on being the relatable guy in TV and on film. He's you. Here's something crazy a celebrity did that I couldn't believe because I'm just a regular guy. You're not a regular guy. You're meeting with Steven Spielberg. You're meeting with Kanye West in a van. Like at one point, Diddy runs into him in a hotel and says, do you want to go hot air ballooning tomorrow morning with me? And they're like, I can't. I'm busy. Like, this book really makes you forget how successful he is. He's made a lot of huge fucking movies that he does not mention. He's been in a lot of TV shows. He's done so much shit. Yeah, he's really successful. I didn't realize how successful he was. I feel like he wrote this book like he's a legacy actor. But I don't know. He's been around long enough for him to just be doing these little goofy projects. This book is written like he thinks he's Bill Murray. Yes. But he's not. Yet. He could have been, but this book is a real thorn in the side. It really was just like he was bored during the pandemic. And when you're that successful, you're allowed to do whatever you want. It's just a silly thing that happened during the pandemic. It's like if during the pandemic, you got really into baking cookies, but because you were successful, you were allowed to turn that into an entire bakery. Not everything should become something. Some things can be hobbies. Yeah. And the thing about this, though, is it like should have been a podcast. Like this is one podcast interview of like the silliest stories from his life. And now we made it a podcast. You're welcome. Seth. <laughs> All right, you guys. We love you so freaking much. We can't wait to see you on the Patreon. We'll be talking about whatever we end up talking about. Who knows? Yeah. The news keeps newsing and it'll be new then too. All right. We love you so much. And Ashley, who do we love the most? Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. Thank you to Just Chillin'. You are the chillest Jess I know. Thank you to CV Atch. You are actually the best. Thank you, Liz Ann XX. Extra kisses back at ya. Thank you, Smeagol2018. I'm sorry about what happened with that ring. I still like you either way. Thank you, Megan.McDonald. You are even better than a golden french fry. Thank you, Big Z Nation. You are the center of my nation. Thank you to Gabster555. I love that you're here to gab with us. Thank you to Seabrook14. I love babbling with you like a babbling brook. Thank you, Virginia Ellen. I hope you're having a great time just gelling. Thank you, Anne's 1966. Anne's, this is one of my favorite reviews. Thank you, Phyllis 2017. You make me feel bliss with reviews like this. Thank you, Potato Head 348. A perfect 
potato snack for a perfect review. Thank you, Nat Loves P-W-I-P-K-I-N. Well, we love you back. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate the five-star reviews. I appreciate you. See you next week.